Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. All the way from Horsenheim in Germany, another one of them who cries crocodile tears when we play chess. We have the very, very great Bernd Ullmeier, a man who is often in South Africa. We know each other. We really like each other. He's very unpretentious. He's an airline pilot for Lufthansa. He started doing that in 2010. In 2011, he started paragliding. And he's just gotten better and better and better at paragliding. He's loving flying triangles. And that's what we're going to talk about today, mostly. We're also going to relate some very funny stories of cross-country and all sorts of cool, cool stuff. Welcome on the podcast, Bound. Super to have you here. Good morning, Steph. Nice to be with you here. Absolutely cool, dude. You've just come back from Colombia. You were telling me about how triangles were being broken on a daily basis. I want to hear that story. But first, start the story with how you actually came to paragliding. It's a very cool one. I like it. Yeah, it was pretty much on accident. My sister had a friend who was working for a paragliding school, and we were looking for a Christmas present for my parents. And I had, like every year, no idea of what to give them. So my sister came up with the idea, hey, let's do that one day course on a training hill, do it with the whole family. So we just go there, have a nice afternoon. And well, I went there, never left the hill till I had my license. So that's it. That's how I started. So you pretty much just carried straight on from the Schnupperkurs day one, little baby slope and off you went. <laughs> yeah, never stopped. I got hooked on that day. The next day I was back. From then on, like every day I was off work and the weather was good, I went flying. You have a pretty dream job where it comes to airline piloting. Um, you always seem to be on some kind of longer standby. Of course, now with Corona, you have a indefinite kind of standby until things are going. Is your job secured? Is that okay? Is that something you can talk about? Uh, sure, I can talk about. I mean, it's, it's in the German news at the moment. Like Lufthansa is negotiating with Germany about getting help from them because... Obviously, they're burning a lot of money at the moment. They do like 1% of the routes they normally fly. So economically, it's a very, very bad time for, under normal circumstances, proper and profitable business. I really think that the government will help that company to stay there. And like every modern economy needs an airline. It needs to be connected to the rest of the world. So to restart Germany economically, they will need that airline. I'm quite relaxed when it comes to that. Yep. I just use the, the time I have now to go flying. You told me that you've been flying over 20 hours in the last few days. Tell us about that. Yeah, like last week, we we had a roll of like six or seven flyable days. So it wasn't brilliant cross-country days, but you could always fly for a couple of hours. I could do like little cross-countries, 40, 50 kilometers I spent one day tandem flying with a couple of friends that were nagging me for the last year or so. Hey, when we can, we go tandem with you. And it was a beautiful day. We got nice climbs, like six, seven hundred meters above takeoff. Had so much fun. It was just a fun week, like three, four hours airtime every day. 
Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, it doesn't seem to be enough for you. We're going to talk later about how you love to just squeeze it out. I mean, you're often doing 140, 160 kilometer triangles here in the Portable Valley, which is kind of a little bit more difficult. Uh, wind seems to set in. We're going to talk about the Alps. You you mentioned uh, flying in the Lee to get back from some of the favorites of your kind of um, uh, triangles that you usually go for. You live in Horsenheim. It's right at the entrance of um, the Alps. It's at the entrance of the Inn Valley, the Inntal, which goes through Innsbruck and goes all the way down towards Switzerland. Um, it's a very, very busy transport valley, basically connecting Germany down all the way down into southern Italy. Which are your house mountains? How quickly do you get to the mountains? My regular house mountain is the Hochries, which is like a northwest facing, facing launch. Good to fly in the afternoons, good to do little flatland stuff, especially when we get a lot of wind. It's normally west wind. There you are a little bit more protected. And then the Hochfellen is quite close, which is like the German launch site to fly the big triangles in the Northern Alps. And that's like 20 minutes by car from my home place. So both of those mountains normally run cable cars. At the moment, there's no cable cars, so it's all by foot. But normally on the big cross-country days, you use the cable car. Typically, how many euros do you pay for a single uh, ride up there, just for our foreign uh, listeners that can have an idea of how affordable or expensive it is to go for a flight there? I'd say the usual cable car between 10 and 15 euros versus one or one and a half hours of walking up. All right, cool. Tell us about Colombia. Pepe Maleki, who also is one, uh, he's uh, on one of my waiting podcasts to be launched. Um, he unfortunately also cried a small crocodile tear when he lost his one day record. Tell us about Colombia. Oh, that, that was awesome. I went down there just after this winter, basically, just when I came back from South Africa, spent a couple of days at home, flew to Colombia, and was really, really lucky with the weather there. Before, it had been raining. After I left, it started raining again. But those two weeks in between were just perfect record-breaking weather. I spent the first couple of days flying around from the one side to the other, stopping somewhere, just sleeping wherever I landed and flying further on the next day. And then I spent one week in Roldanillo to do triangles. It was quite cool because there was a really good bunch of pilots on launch every day. As you mentioned, Pepe Malecki was there, Kevin Phillips from Switzerland, young guy Jonas Karlin, very, very talented on his M7, Jan Tupi, a couple of others. Every day at like 8, 8.30 in the morning, there would be a group of really keen pilots launching. Basically, the race was on. So when you fly the big triangles there, you always fly the same route normally. So you fly to the... Now it's getting complicated. It's the north first. Then you fly back south along the mountains. And at some point, you cross the valley to set uh, your basically second leg into the flats and then you return to base which normally you don't really get home because you get a strong westerly wind blowing against you and it comes down the mountain like a fern wind so yeah so the days are quite short so normally it ends at like five o'clock so launching early is vital to fly big there conditions were so good that i think last year kevin phillips was holding the record at 140 something kilometers people were talking about well the 160k should be possible could be possible you can do it bogdan who's been flying there for years he was telling me about it and every year he was chasing that 160k and then the conditions were just so good that 
I think it was Kevin who started it. He did a 160 something kilometers the one day. And boom, the next day, Jan Tupi does, does 178. And then Pepe comes in and in the evening, he's super proud. Yeah, 180K. And he really pushed the turn point into a little valley where landings don't look that nice. And he was really, really proud. And the next evening, everybody just walks up to him and says, hey, have you seen Kevin's new record? Because he did 183 something, which was really insane. I flew the first two or three hours of that flight up to the southern turn point. I flew together with him. I did 160 something that day. He just set that southern turn point much further into the mountains, basically into mountains where nobody had been flying before. And But it was intense, like in the mornings, cloud base is low. So you always stay close to the terrain. You fly into valleys where you can, the only option if you get low is slope landing, because on the valley floor, there is no landings. You go in there super low, like a cloud base, 100, 200 meters above the mountains. And you fly into those valleys where there's no landings on the valley floor. But the mountains work so good that landing is not is not really an op. I mean, it is an option, but you don't have to. Yeah, uh, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> I'm very happy we chose this as, as a theme for a podcast, uh, this triangle uh, story, because it's one that obviously quite a few people are starting to look more and more towards. Uh, just got a picture of Valde Tom in uh, Zilla Valley this morning, uh, 325 kilometers, if I'm not mistaken. He's still got the, the biggest flight in the Alps. Is that right, Bernd? Um, I think he got the biggest flight in the Northern Alps, yes. I think they, okay. I mean, for sure in, in France, they did, I think, what's the French guy's name? Uh, Luc Armand, I think he did a 340k once and then Kriegel broke it last year or the year before with a 350k triangle in Switzerland. In the Austrian Alps, Tom Walder definitely is like the guy with the biggest ones. All right, so Kriegel holds a big record of all, all triangles so far at about 350, does he? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Are you very busy on XC contest? Is that uh, one of your motivating forces? Uh, do you try and win something or uh, wh wh what drives you to do triangles? Um, it's just the, the fun of flying. I, I, just, I just like pushing myself further and further. I now will never win the X contest. To win the X contest or the, the German equivalent to that, you have to be on the proper mountain like on those four, five, six days that we get for the really, really good triangles a year. And for that, you have to be able to get off work whenever there is one of those days. And you need the time the day before to drive down there. Because for the Grand Triangles, you start walking at six o'clock in the morning. There's no cable car. And you launch at like 8.30, 9-ish. You land at eight and the next day getting up to work at five o'clock in the morning after three hour, four hour drive home, well, you gotta have the possibility to get off work uh, whenever there is a good day. And quite often the people drive down there and it looks like a really, really good day. They're on launch and it's just shit too much north wind. I'm quite sure I will never win any of those online contests, but my motivation is more, I try to push myself more and more. And the flying those triangles is fun because you fly through beautiful landscape, it's just amazing. Cool. Uh, let's go to the actual reason why you fly triangles. What's with the concept of triangles? You told me something super interesting a minute ago. 
the main reason why quite often I try to fly triangles, especially somewhere where I'm alone, say I just fly to Turkey and go there for on a walk and fly thing and do a couple of days walk and fly flying there. I always try to fly triangles because I don't want to think about retrieve. When I do a triangle, I land next to my car and five minutes after packing, I'm in my car and I can do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about retrieve, getting back, what's going to happen the next day. Eventually I have to go to work maybe, because that's all stuff that, that keeps you from, from flying far. Especially if you fly like the one direction and well, if you don't give a fuck about retrieve, then you just go like you have the train station right under you and it's late in the day and you have a really, really shitty climb. Well, when you worry about retrieve, you will go for a landing. When you don't give a fuck about retrieve, you will take that climb and maybe you can fly another one or two hours. And that's where the big flights come from. Yeah, I think you've said something important uh, about just putting a retrieve or landing or where you're going to land or how sophisticated the place is. Of course, you told me a little earlier about landing in Inverduin. We have a couple of scary places to land. More that people don't realize that they walk out and someone says, oh, that's the lion breeding farm or the rhinoceros. Um, that's where the rhinoceros daddy shags the rhinoceros mommy. And you don't want to be anywhere near when that kind of stuff is about to happen. Tell us. Well, New Year's Day this year, we went on a mission in, uh, from Porterville. We drove like an hour to that site where we thought, well, it should be really nice to fly cross country from there. So we went there. I was, let's say, reasonably hungover. After Basically, after two hours into the flight, I just had to stop. I couldn't take it anymore. I went for a landing there, quite close to a road. And I thought, well, quick retrieve, back in the car, get some lunch. Well, in the end, I ended up waiting in the desert for eight or nine hours because Richard Barber, uh, he decided not to fly and he was in the car with the driver and he decided to go to Inverdorn Reserve for a fancy lunch. And basically at the time where I landed, they passed like a couple hundred meters from me, passed right next to me, went to the Inverdorn Game Reserve, didn't didn't get access there because they don't take day visitors. So they just drove on to Sutherland and that's when I was stuck in the desert. How does it feel when somebody drives past you and you know that that's your ride and for some reason the radio isn't working and there's no cell phone <laughs> I didn't see the car, I just heard it and from from the tracks on the little arm later on you could see that it was actually them. Yeah. Well, it was a long wait. A couple hours later I walked to Inverdorn Reserve to get a landline connection there and the manager showed up at the gate and he was actually quite annoyed with me because he said that one of my friends, Marcus, had been flying low over there, the reserve where they got Renos. How do you pronounce it? Rhinoceros? Rhinoceros. Rhinoceros. Yeah, that thing and lights and all that stuff running around. So they actually had a, a guy on a quad bike with a gun driving under Marcus in the game reserve to protect him in case he lands there. Wow. Yeah, with litigation these days, it's absolutely awful what's going on. You know, you as a paraglider pilot can land in a game reserve and it will all be the game reserve's fault that they've got their game reserve there, which is absolutely yeah. insane. I mean, when you land there, well, that is basically your own problem. You could have landed on the road. I think that's not uh, what makes lots of uh, places in the USA, for example, really tricky to fly. Uh, the landowners, uh, I've, I've done some kind of uh, under-the-radar flying around in, in, in the USA and... Um, 
Oh, I tell you what, uh, it's really not nice to know that uh, you're going to be having a gun pointed at you because that was some guy's land and you didn't go and ask beforehand. Meanwhile, it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I know. That USHPA thing in the US and getting permissions for the launch sites. I often go there on working trips and I have one day to fly there. It's literally impossible to legally fly there. So normally I just walk up any random mountain and fly there because I don't have time to get that USHPA membership and walk to that club, get a site briefing, find someone. Just too complicated. Um, I think that uh, kind of defeats the point of our free flying sport. You know, you're obviously an airline pilot and you love paragliding. I mean, you're one of those guys, you've probably got the reputation for being the guy that squeezes the most kilometers out of this most popular place in South Africa, Portable. And you just seem to just be like the crack. You seem to be here every summer for good reason, of course. Everyone who speaks of Portable absolutely loves it. But the free flying is, of course, killed a little bit with the rules over rules and you have to get so much paperwork going on. Definitely. But I think it's still quite all right in Portable. The regulated or the, yeah, the regulated sites, the proper launch sites, they are, you have a little bit of rules and you have that SARPA membership, which was a bit of a thing last year because the increased prices, yeah, the explanation, well, you Europeans can afford it. That was a bit annoying to a couple of people, but apart from that, I mean, last year driving around with my girlfriend and exploring new places, people were really friendly. So we just drove up to farmers' houses and said, well, your mountain looks launchable. Do you mind if we fly there? And they were like, no, no problem. You can fly there, but park your car next to our farm because outside somebody might break into it or steal it. There were really friendly people there, actually, yeah. I think that's what makes our country really, really nice. And it's funny that the, the worst part is uh, please park your car near our farm so that it doesn't get broken into. That's absolutely absurd, yeah. you know. would be mad. I was speaking more and more to people about doing some bike and fly uh, style tours, which we'll definitely be looking at uh, if officially or unofficially in November, December, January next year. So taking some motorcycles, which uh, guys who don't own one who are coming from overseas can very simply rent and then having a backup vehicle with all the gliders and stuff. And sometimes it's camping, sometimes it's staying in a guest house, sometimes it's a mix up. Uh, if someone wants a, a bed inside, someone wants to sleep in their tent just for fun and have a really big party at a new flying place every day. I think you'd definitely be in for that. You ride a motorcycle in your spare time. You do lots yeah. of other cool stuff. Tell us what you do, how, how you waste your time with Maria and the rest. Well, um, as you mentioned, I got a motorcycle, occasionally ride it. It's an old Honda XR650 93 model, so it's a nice old off-road bike. Um, I do some climbing, so um, in the indoor climbing gym when the weather is bad or uh, in the mountains, which is the most fun, especially on the fern days where the weather is good, but you can't fly. That's a really nice pastime. They are well, sometimes I have to work, which is <laughs> normally quite all right as well. It works out like just a small part of your life, which is great. <laughs> well, now on long haul flights, normally I try to go to the West Coast or something. So it's one day where I fly there, then I got one or two days off there. And I normally take my paraglider or just my walking up the mountain stuff and I go exploring so just walk up somewhere fly around there like last year I flew in the United States west coast I flew in Japan around Tokyo 
really beautiful mountains, excellent launch sites, really, really nice, friendly people. Communication is sometimes a problem because English is not one of the main languages there, but really, really helpful people and awesome flying. I never expected that from Japan. Let me ask another question. Where do you really love to fly otherwise? I mean, you, you're an airline pilot. Uh, you pretty much travel for free. Even when you're not working, you jump on a flight, you go somewhere. Where else has really grabbed your attention? Basically, my second home, South Africa. I've been flying so much the last years. And basically, that's where my, my proper cross-country flying really started. Like doing the classic routes up to Glen William and the last years exploring more and more the triangle options there. Um, which seemed to be a, a pretty much new thing in South Africa. Like the only one who did it before, I think, was Long Pete. Then for sure the Alps, where I live, it's on the good days, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Colombia is great in January, February. I was totally amazed by Turkey. Turkey, I met you on that competition as well in Chamele. It's, I think it's still, that week of flying is the best week of flying I've ever had. Like the conditions were so good, so strong. We flew every day. There was just the one a little bit windy day, but for a, for a downwind trip, perfect. Turkey so nice, cheap for foreigners. Retrieve is never a problem. I spent a week walk and flying there last year in September with a friend and we flew a hundred kilometers the one way. We were back at the car two hours later and we, we didn't have any retrieve sorted. There are small buses everywhere. People are super helpful. The flying conditions are great, always. Yeah. I have to say Turkey is one of those really, really top countries to travel and to fly. Every time I arrive in Turkey, I never have my own car. Um, they've got a super, super network of buses from smaller buses doing very small routes between towns to bigger buses, which are going every hour, every two hours, every half an hour. It's really difficult uh, for you to, to come uh, stuck in Turkey when it comes to retrieve or moving around the country for that matter. Turkey's east side is one side I've never seen, but it should be absolutely sensational too. But the rest of Turkey is huge, it's different, it's varied, and it's bloody brilliant country to travel and fly. Yeah, and totally underrated. All the guided trips, they go they go to Lefkada in Greece, and that's the furthest east they go. And nobody goes to Turkey, which I can't understand because it's so great. Yeah, I mean, I love Greece. Uh, Greece in itself is a brilliant country to travel and uh, the cultural uh, element of Greece is, of course, something a little bit different to Turkey. They've got that kind of animosity going. But Turkey and Iran, of course, uh, if we can still have a chance to go to Iran, um, if you've got a kind of possibility in your passport to be able to get to Iran, even today, as Shahin said in his podcast, business as usual in Tehran and around Iran, and definitely worth the flying there. Have you ever flown there? I've never flown there, but it is definitely on my bucket list from from your podcast, from stories you told me before. It just looks so amazing. And I mean, 6000 meter cloud base, strong desert climbs. It just looks great. Yeah, I really want to go there whenever I get the chance. That excitement makes you pretty horny to fly here, Bernd. And what I really want to look into at some point is China as well, because um, I saw a couple of flights Chinese pilots did and from the conditions it looked like when, you know, you look at the track logs and on really regular intervals, the find climbs, the climbs seem to be going up in one piece, not too much wind. 
it looks like in some areas there there is really really good flying just nobody does it so yeah it's amazing for the most populous country in the world there's not a lot of pilots that fly in china and uh, it should be really really good to get around and to fly and to discover and to travel i mean i've been in china traveling but uh, i mean the most stuffed up food you can eat uh, i don't want to eat in a wet market in wuhan that's for sure <laughs> that roasted bat they sell there really isn't that bad <laughs> I ate some pretty ugly stuff in China. When I used to travel, I used to travel for just eating the worst stuff I could eat, like the absolute. If there was a roasted cockroach or rat or anything, definitely. But now I've stopped that. My stomach has gotten weaker as I've gotten older. And I hated that they just, like, they they put a whole chicken in the shredder. And then you get the chicken meat, but with still those little bones inside, how are you supposed to eat that? Nobody can eat that. It's just a little bit of meat with bones. You know what? Uh, luckily, we're not all the same, uh, Bernd, that we are still all uh, um, you know, uh, threaded from a different cloth. Because otherwise, the world would be so bloody boring if we were all into exactly the same thing. And that's what I also think makes these podcasts so interesting, just sharing of ideas and different places. And, you know, you're in the Alps. Tell us about that cool flight that you did last May, that 218, and uh, about Marcus's experience. So that day, was it was forecast to be a good day. So I went to Hochfelln. The day didn't start that early. So I think we launched around 10, where as not quite often on the really, really good days, you could have like a half an hour, 45 minutes earlier launch. So that's where you already lose like the first 20 kilometers of that day. But then it was just beautiful. There was no wind and it's from there, it's normally like a set route. So you know which route you fly down to the Pinskau Valley, which is a huge east-west going valley. The day before, I had already done a 200-kilometer flight. I just made it over the 200-kilometer mark for the first time, was super happy with that. So I extended a little bit more to the west on that day, flew further east, and I decided to choose to make it back home to the car instead of pushing deeper into the alpine main range where normally you can fly longer you can extend your triangle more but normally when you fly in there like the gasteiner tal which would eventually lead you over to south tyrol on the other side quite close to Silian, where you quite often go instead of doing that i decided okay i'll fly back north back to launch to close the triangle and uh, land close to the car i took that route the day stopped quite early, so it got weaker and weaker, clouds started to vanish, and it was still quite early. So I think I landed at like 5 or 6, 6 o'clock maybe, which is quite early for those triangles. Thing is, you spend most of the day in the mountains, close to the main alpine range, so in the high mountains. And when you try to make it back to launch, you fly into lower and lower mountains, thermals get weaker, the day stops earlier. You always get that, we call it the Bavarian wind, which is a northeasterly wind um, that comes in during the afternoon. And the closer you are to the German flats, the more pronounced that wind is. So on the way back from the main Alpine range back to launch, you fly in the afternoon for sure those southwest faces and you got that northeasterly wind coming over it, which is normally not too strong so if the climbs are still going well 
uh, perfectly flyable lee side on those ranges. When climbs get weaker, you don't have that that upwind on the mountains. You just go into the lee side and you hope to find a bubble. That's why the the days there stop quite often stop quite early when thermals are not not strong enough anymore. And that day that was what happened. So basically, I had a good average speed the whole day, but the day just stopped early. So my decision to fly back to launch instead of going into the Alpine main range to extend the triangle more, but not make it back to the car. So that decision didn't work out. I should have done that instead of trying to get home. So in the end, I didn't make it home. So I had to hitchhike anyway, but it was still, I mean, my longest flight was super, super awesome there. Marcus did the other thing. He went into like the main range then and landed further south, um, but had a far longer distance. Tell us quickly about planning cross-country triangle cross-country flights. Uh, how, how do you plan that? Do you look on XE contest? Do you compare other people's notes? Do you see what others have done a lot? Um, do you just think it out yourself? In the Alps, basically, you just fly what everybody does. Just match the, the turn points to where you think you could end up at the day. So basically, you want to fly a 200k triangle. You plan a 250k triangle on XE planner along that pretty much given route, and then you you just go for it. South Africa is a different story. Like doing the triangles there, thing you know portable for is wind. So every day in the afternoon, you get that southwesterly wind. And that's why people normally don't fly triangles there because you can't really penetrate against the wind, it gets strong. So the key there for big triangles, because you launch into the west face or in Pempoonfontein, and in the mornings, you don't have that southerly component in the wind normally. And quite often, you even get a little bit of a northerly flow in. So there, I just push, try to push as far south as I can, even as far as 60, 70 kilometers south, which is basically where Bainskloof Pass is. So I try to push south as far as I can while we still have a westerly wind. And normally at some point, your headwind component just gets too big and that southerly is coming in. And that's the point where you head for the flats. So you go south, then you, the wind starts turning southwest into a headwind. Then you fly out into the flats with a crosswind during the strongest part of the day. So you do the most difficult part in the strongest part of the day. The wind is not that strong yet. Thermals are good. And then at some point, normally, normally, that's the thing in portable. When you get low and it's later in the day, the southerly becomes quite strong in the flats. Yeah, so anywhere on the way to Bainskloof Pass, uh, you just start going into the flats with a crosswind, strongest part of the day. So climbs are normally good. The wind is not that strong. And then at some point where you decide to turn or you get low and that southerly just pushes you north, north, which happens, you just go into your third leg of the day and just do a downwinder with the wind back to launch where normally you're just super fast. You do a very, very good average because you got a 20, 30 kilometer wind blowing you that way. So yeah, that's the portable triangle flying. Just push south. It's fantastic. I mean, you're doing something that nobody else is doing. You know, you're really, and you're not doing it to try and break any kind of records. You just do it for yourself. I think it's an absolutely beautiful motivation to come to a place like this. You stay here for weeks at a time. You chill out. It's absolutely perfect here. I mean, the food and the, 
drinks are so cheap and it's really good quality and you're enjoying every day is a simple ride up to launch and then it's off you go and you fly really nicely so look forward to welcoming you back here again soon my friend yeah i'll definitely be back this this next summer my next winter yeah i can't i actually can't imagine a winter for me without going to portable it's like the thing i do for years now I have to say, I also love being such a migratory bird that moves forward and back between summer and summer and summer. And even as I sit here like an old lady with a blanket around my legs because it's starting to get uh, really um, short days here. The days are just 10 hours of daylight now. I would have already been in Europe for a month now. I find it a little bit sad that we have this craziness going on in the world, especially since there's so much um, uh, uncertainty with what's next, where we're going. And it just seems like the decisions are made by so very few people. And we always ask ourselves if they're in the right place to be doing that. What's your feeling on that? Well, <clears throat> it certainly gets a bit political there. I can only say it for Germany, like, I think they reacted properly in the beginning, like you didn't, there was a new sort of sickness where you don't really know where it's coming from, what it's doing. So they really pulled a long shot there and said, okay, we'll lock everything down, we'll do stuff. But then, at least in Germany, I have the impression that it wasn't that bad. It might be because they reacted, it might be because the sickness just wasn't that bad in Germany, I don't know. They had to make the decision to go a bit more easy on restrictions, like we didn't have that harsh lockdown that you guys have in South Africa. It was a bit easier here and it was only like the first two weeks were a bit more harsh and then you could do sports all the time, all day. And now they are really easing it up, which I think is the way to go. And they are thinking about opening the borders in Europe, which I really appreciate because then we can go triangle flying into Austria again. But I don't really think that in Europe where it is basically pretty much under control, at least Germany, Austria, France, you don't really need, need border controls, closed borders, because the risk of infection is the same everywhere. And just me being in Austria doesn't make me more infectious or prone to get infected as if standing here in Rosenheim. It's the same. So I think you made a good point there. I think that's pretty powerful. Uh, it's um, obviously an extremely difficult one, but uh, it's one that will pass and I think our lives will carry on. Obviously, Africa, India, you know, the poorest places in the world are obviously going to be much, much harder hit. I'm really feeling for our country as we see our politicians um, turning this into a political battle. And that's really a, a crying shame for me, especially at the cost of people who have to go to work every single day. Of course, I've got my own team that I'm supporting and I'm very proud to be able to, in a, to be in a financial position that I can kind of look after those that I most need to look after. So that's really nice for me. But uh, it's, of course, extremely hard pulling to know that people who have nearly nothing now have really, really nothing. That uh, for them, they're not going to jump back into a stimulated economy. They're going to jump back into a difficult time. So Yeah, and that's the thing, especially South Africa, where so many poor people... And they go to work every day to to earn their money to buy next week's food. And they don't go to work, they don't get any food. That's the problem in India as well. Unfortunately, we have a kind of thinking where people are debted to the max. Uh, they, you know, uh, they don't have credit cards, but if they did, they'd be maxed out completely. And uh, unfortunately, there's no financial planning to speak of here. Uh, I always joke that the happiest place in South Africa are the townships where people are having a fat party and they're living for today because they have absolutely nothing. And uh, I always relate it 
to our poor workers who are coming to the landing field every day in a very affluent area of Seapoint. Um, and they see the people with the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis driving past. And I, and I say to them, I remark to them, I say, look at those guys. Are those guys ever happy? And the answer is generally no. They've always got a long face on there. So it seems that the people with the most in the world are those that are the least happy and the other way around. Yeah, got a point there. Are we going quite <laughs> philosophical here now? <laughs> yeah, we're getting quite philosophical and we're also getting quite serious. So let's uh, turn the last question your way. You were going to give me some tips if you if you were uh, wanting to advise any cross-country or thermic pilot, someone who's used to their home ground and who's feeling like they'd like to go further. Any tips whatsoever? I think the most important thing first is you have to to want it. Like when you just want to do it because you want to impress your buddies, forget about it. When you really want to to go far because you want to explore, you you want to see that area where you've never been before. That's the way to go. Um, but then, most important thing there is forget about retrieve. The, when you when you always have in mind that you have to be back at seven o'clock in the evening forget flying far you will always have that thing nagging you when you i don't know your girl you know your girlfriend will be angry when you only show up at nine o'clock ten o'clock in the evening because you had a banging 10-hour flight then forget about it you can't have that in your head just don't think about retrieve don't think about the time when you will be back just fly which for sure like there is areas where you should think about retrieve in South Africa, going into the desert without retrieve probably is not a good option because you might die in there, you might land there and nobody picks you up. I'm talking about the Alps, something like that. And retrieve being that you just stand next to the road and hitchhike and there's public transport, there's everything. Just don't worry about it. And even if you have to get a hotel room for a night or sleep in some shack somewhere, well, it won't kill you. It will be a nice story. And your flying will definitely improve when you just stop thinking stop thinking about that retrieve how do i get back it will always work out somehow yeah, i like that very nice absolutely great uh, i think that the mindset thing that you said at the beginning is also very very strong but uh, you know you must want that uh, i think a lot of mental preparation is needed in, in in the bigger picture for pilots to to get it in their heads that they want that you must be hungry for that you must say right screw it i'm going out there i'm going to start flying further and further and further and, and leaving that kind of string attaching you to your home takeoff site or whatever. And obviously the retrieve and the timing and the worrying and you're out there to fly. Forget it. Your day is dedicated to going flying. That's all you're there for. And you'll feel really good if you've slept in a shack, shared a very modest meal with somebody on a mountain in India, but uh, you've gone for two days flying instead of one day flying. I think that's the kind of um, uh, the, the spirit of our sport, eh, Bound? Yeah, Definitely. That's that's how you do cross country and that's how you need to do it. And it's always a, also a lot of fun. Like I met so many interesting people on rides back home. So many stories to tell of people that took me in their car, uh, drove me somewhere in South Africa, farmers that invited me for beers and food at their place because you just land in the middle of nowhere. Retrieve is a lot of fun in the paragliding game. Mostly the next day when you got it done, but 
<laughs> yeah, obviously, you know, egos and, and pride have got lots to do with uh, us uh, stopping ourselves from going far. So we will, um, you know, uh, we will say to ourselves, oh, um, let's go in two cars. Let's leave one car on the landing. Let's leave one car on the takeoff. And then we can collect the second car afterwards. And I say, like uh, our mutual buddy, Ria, I've said to him, uh, hey, dude, let's meet at the petrol station at the bottom of uh, Bain's Kloof Pass, or sorry, um, Dutoy's Kloof Pass, and let's hitchhike up that road. And each of us holds 50 rand or 100 rand between us. Uh, the first person who's going to come past and give us a ride. And I swear we didn't even have to wait a few minutes. And we've decided that, like, that's the way we're going from now on. Get up to the top there. If we're up there with our gliders and uh, for some reason it's not flyable, screw it. We hitchhike back down again. And it's as simple as that. You know? Yeah, especially on those busy roads. How often do you have to wait long? Like... Not really. I think hitchhiking in Corona times is probably a little more challenging. Actually, it's much easier. Cause <laughs> really? <clears throat> really. Just last week, I, I had a little flight around Lake Kimsee and landed on the point where I was the furthest away from my car. And coming back those, I think, 40 kilometers, 45 kilometers by road didn't even take me a waiting time of two minutes. Because... Wow. In Germany you now, there's there's so many people that think those measures against Corona are too drastic. They don't want the government to tell them what to do. So they normally wouldn't take a hitchhiker, but they're like, well, fuck you, government. I'm going to take that kite just because I'm not supposed to. And really, it, at the moment, it's super easy. You get a ride in, in a second. That's actually the best story you've told me today. I love it. <laughs> The anti-establishment, screw the government, screw what's going on. I'm taking this hitchhiker with his bag. <laughs> Love it, dude. And it works. Are there any last words you want to say before we wrap up this beauty of a podcast? Uh, maybe don't molest too many people today, Steph. Please. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I'm not the guy for big last words. No, there are going to be many last words for you. Man, Tollmeyer, Rosenheim, Germany, a 32-year-old, extremely enthusiastic, such a likable guy. And uh, thank you very much for participating and being on the podcast. Cheers, buddy. Thanks for having me, Steph. Bye. I haven't had you, but uh, hopefully in the future. <laughs> <laughs>